Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. We're in this series, Fixing Our Eyes on Jesus. And what we're saying, I believe, is what the Bible says, that if we get our eyes our spiritual eyes on Jesus Christ, if we zero in on him, if we focus on him, if we understand him greater day after day, we will have the strength and endurance we need to live the Christian life. We will transform the way that Jesus wants us to transform. We will learn to love him more and love our sin less. And knowing and understanding and fixing our eyes on Jesus is at the heart of what it takes to be a believer regardless of of where we live. So we're saying let's fix our eyes on Jesus and we come to a really interesting story. I was excited to include this story in our um, series of teaching about this because I love this story. First and foremost, I love it because all the indications in the way that Luke wrote this tells us that Mary probably told Luke this story herself. Luke knows some details about what was going on in Mary's heart and I can just imagine Mary Many years later, you know, Luke was a researcher. He interviewed people over and over to really know what was true in the Gospels. And I could just imagine Luke sitting down with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Imagine Luke's excitement. And he's getting ready to get stories from her. And he gets the story about the time they lost Jesus and forgot Jesus back in Jerusalem. But he tells us really what was going on in Mary's heart. So I love it because of that reason. I also love this story because I've had similar experience in my life both as a child and as a parent. I was lost for two hours in the St. Clairsville Mall one time. I was found by the grip of the back of my neck, really firmly, too. <laughs> I knew exactly where I was. I knew what Jesus felt like. I knew exactly where I was at seven years old. I was just in the store that I told my parents. It just happened to be, you know, down the hall and to the left, and they had lost me. And I've actually known this experience as a parent myself, too. Uh, when Before Nash was born, Reed was about two and a half years old. Lisa and Elena were running out. And um, I was watching football on Saturday on the couch, and Nash was in the toy room playing. That's what he was doing. And um, Lisa called me pretty quickly after leaving and just asked me what Nash was up to. And I said, oh, he's just playing in the toy room. And she goes, well, you might want to come outside and get him. He's down past the neighbor's house on the sidewalk. I was like, ooh. <laughs> I just imagine if she didn't drive that way to go, you know, I, I know that feeling. You know, Anytime you just have children, you know that. I mean, so I sympathize with Mary and Joseph. Boy, if you're a parent, been in charge of the well-being of a child, even if you're not a parent, you know that feeling, that weight. So I sympathize with Mary. But I got to tell you, most of all, I love this story because it's the only story we get about Jesus' real childhood. And you might wonder, out of all the stories of Jesus' childhood, why do we get this one? Why is it? I want to remind you this morning that the Gospels were written not just to give us an historical account of Jesus, like there's some encyclopedia or history textbook, but the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written by evangelists who were collecting the necessary stories to give to readers so that they might come to have faith in Jesus Christ. That's why they're there. Okay, with that being true, why in the world would Luke include a story about Mary and Joseph forgetting Jesus in Jerusalem that would help us 
follow Jesus better. See, I love this story because it's really a story about what Mary learns more than it really is about Jesus. This story is about being close to Jesus, having Jesus, and then forgetting Jesus. And what we actually find when we search for him and we locate him, there's big lessons in this story, and I hope we can learn them today. So let's try. Number one, who are the people that can forget Jesus? Who can actually forget Jesus? As a, cha- as a child and a parent, I told you I really sympathize with Mary and with Joseph. I want to tell you, first of all, I have no judgment for Mary and Joseph in this story. And if you've been in charge of taking care of a child, and maybe that child has wandered away or done something, and you've for just a split second wondered where that child is, you know that feeling, that pit in your stomach, like, where are they? Man, this story, there's plenty of stories in the Bible about rebellious people who disobey God and run away from God. But this story, Luke chapter 2, with Mary and Joseph, is not a prodigal story who want to run away from God. These people are Jesus' parents. They love him. They care for him. They treasure him. These people want to be with Jesus, and yet they forget him. You see, this story reminds us that anyone can forget Jesus. These are his parents. These are the people who having Jesus matters so much to them, and yet they forget him. And I think that's the point of this story being included, is that anyone can forget Jesus. I want you to look at who his parents were. We learn something about them in this story. The first thing you learn is that they were consistent people. These people were God-fearing law-obeying, genuine Jewish believers in God. They were sincere. They were not the religious elite that sort of used God and manipulated God or tried to manipulate God to get what they wanted. They were just genuine, good-hearted, faithful, believing people. That's who they were. Look in chapter 2, verses 39 and 40. It says this about them. That when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. This is the, the naming and the circumcision of Jesus. That they took this serious. That they did the things that they were supposed to do according to the law. And Jesus grew up in their household. And the favor of God was upon Jesus in this household. Meaning, Joseph was teaching Jesus the scriptures in his home. He was raising him up like a good Jewish boy would be raised. And then in verse 41 it says this. His parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. So let me point out, first of all, his parents, the people that forgot Jesus, were consistent, God-fearing, God-honoring people. But they were also comfortable. So this story happens at a time when people were celebrating and feeling a a large level of enjoyment, really. This would be like a holiday-type atmosphere, Passover. It was somber and sober. There was reverence involved in it. But it was really a large gathering of family, friends, and people that you shared faith with to celebrate what God had done for them when he led them out of Egyptian captivity. And in the Passover, they were celebrating and rejoicing. So there was a lot of eating, there was a lot of gathering together, a lot of time and fellowship and stories being told and food being eaten and all of those things. This was not a fast, but a feast. And the point is this, that 
in all of my interactions with people, most of the time we forget Jesus in prosperity, not adversity. Meaning when we face real difficult situations, man, people turn to Christ. People are quick to pray when life is really under the gun. But when we grow comfortable and life becomes a little bit easy, prosperity sort of abounds, and we just sort of are in the flow of things are going well, it's easy for us to not purposefully run away from Jesus, but just forget for a little while. His parents were consistent, but they were comfortable. And that tells us that we need to be very much paying attention. Even as faithful people who love Jesus, we can forget him. Well, how? Lesson number two. How do we forget Jesus? And if you read this story, you can see quickly why this happened to Mary and Joseph. For 12 years, they've been going to the Passover feast. So they get the group together from the hometown. They journey all the way over to Jerusalem. They celebrate the feast. The feast is over, and they journey back. This is something that happens regularly for them. 12 years, year after year, they have done this over and over. They're doing what they've always done, and this time is no different, but Jesus decides he's going to hang back in Jerusalem and not go with them. That's the only thing really that changed. And there's one word that jumps off the page when you see this. Look down in verse 43. It says, when the feast was, had ended, they were returning. The boy stayed, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group. You catch that word? They assumed. They just assumed he was in the group. You see, here's what we learn. We can forget Jesus when we rely on things other than Jesus to stay connected to him. They were relying, they were supposing, they were assuming, they were depending on some things in their journey home other than actually being connected to Jesus to say that Jesus was still with them. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Okay, first of all, let me show you. They relied on their routine. They had done this year after year. For 11 straight years, they went down in the group, ate the food, celebrated the feast, packed things up, and the whole group went back. And for 11 years, they had enjoyed the benefit of Jesus always going back with them, right? But the 12th time, they're doing the same routine. Jesus stays back. They're relying on the routine. Now let me tell you, they assumed doing the routine would mean that automatically Jesus was there, letting it, pardon me, let me say this this way. Those who have been Christians for a while need routine. Routine is not the enemy in this story, so don't understand that. Routine is not the enemy. Routine is a good thing, but the danger is relying on the routine and letting the routine of what you do replace Jesus. So Christians, follow with me. You have a routine that you need to be engaging in in your faith. Maybe it's daily scripture and prayer. Maybe you meet with some other Christians for coffee and prayer time and Bible study. Maybe you practice some ministry and some service. You gather together on weekends with the church and you worship and you pray and you sing and you listen to sermons. And these routines are necessary. But if you let the routine be what you're connected to and not the routine pointing you to Jesus, you might forget him. You can do this for years and lose touch with Jesus. The point of the routine is to keep you connected to Jesus, not replace Jesus. 
Forgetting Jesus oftentimes happens when we let the routine replace him. The problem is not the routine. The problem is replacing Jesus with the routine. Now, the second thing they did, they relied on the routine, but they also relied on the group. Do you see that in verse 44? Supposing him to be in the group. So they just relied upon, which was a very normal thing to do. Imagine traveling you know, with eight or nine families, and they've all got kids, and you're taking off from Jerusalem to head back home, and you just assume, you know, somebody's got my kid. That's a normal thing. That was a very, they're not bad parents. This was very, very normal. They assumed Jesus was with the group somewhere, so they just kind of kept journeying. And let me tell you, as a Christian, it's vital for you. I would argue it's necessary for you to have a good group of people in your life who encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. But we need people who point us to Jesus, but we also must be careful, just like with the routine. People in our group cannot replace Jesus in our life. Our main source, your main source of joy, of peace, of confidence, of hope, of purpose, cannot come just from the group that you interact with, even if they are all Christians together. Your main source of peace and joy and life and purpose and confidence has to come with you staying connected to Jesus Christ. And you need people in your life who remind you of that, who point you to Jesus, who encourage you to do that. But you can't let the group replace Jesus. This is a real danger. This is why this story is important. This is not some radical, disobedient, rebellious people saying, I'm done with Jesus and I don't want him. That happens sometimes. This is a story about a woman who loved Jesus, who loved and honored God. But somewhere in the routine and in the group, she sort of grew comfortable. And in this story, we see that she's not directly connected to Jesus for a moment. Church folk, listen to me. This is us. We can't let our routine or our groups be Jesus They have to point us to Jesus. And if they don't, we'll get lost. Okay? How do we find Jesus? Lesson number three. Mary and Joseph are wonderful examples in this. You imagine the pit in their stomach, right? When uh, Can you just picture Mary's face? Like, this has to be Joseph's fault, right? You got Jesus, right? And Joseph's going, "Uh, I got the diaper bag. You know, like... (laughs) And I want to just be patient for a moment with uh, Mary and Joseph. They had more kids after this. You know, they had, Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. And they're just flowing. They're working. They're doing, right? And all of a sudden, Joseph says to Mary, you got Jesus? You got Jesus? Hey, uh, Cousin Eddie, you got Jesus? Nobody has Jesus. And imagine what their stomach felt like. (gasps) But when you see how they responded, okay, here's where you extract the lesson for finding Jesus. First of all, first and foremost, here's how you find Jesus. Finding Jesus depends on how we look, how you actually look. Now, the Bible uh, gives us this word. Here's the word that's used for it in verse 45. uh, 44, pardon me. Supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him. Okay? 45, they didn't find him. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So Luke is using the word search or searching and It feels a little bit benign for the situation, doesn't it? I don't see any words like frantic, you know, or intensely, or panicking, or freaking out, right? Like, there's nothing in that. But the word search that Luke uses 
includes all of that energy inside of the word. What it means is up and down, left and right. It means no adversity will stop me from looking. I won't be distracted. It is the only thing I'm doing is searching. When this happened, I guarantee they took their other children and handed them off to, you know, friends and to cousins and to uncles. And they said, watch these children. We've got one job. We have to find Jesus. So if you've been a Christian a while and the routine in the group maybe have replaced what faith in Christ is for you, you got to learn from Mary and Joseph how to find Jesus. you got to start searching seriously. You got to look hard. You got to, no difficulty can stop you. You've got to devote yourself to it. But it's not just how we look, but it's also where we look. Look what they do. They start right where they are. Okay, so they've gone a day. They can't find Jesus, and they start looking right where they are amongst the relatives and the friends. And this is typically what we do when we realize that we don't have Jesus. We stop where we are and we start looking where we are to find Jesus. And the reality is. Here's the principle. Jesus was not where they went. He was where they were. Did you catch that? Jesus was not where they went. He was where they were. That's the principle. They do what you and I actually must do. Because when you wake up and you realize Jesus isn't with you and you have forgotten Jesus, he's probably not in the place where you've journeyed to without him. You've got to retrace your steps. Jesus is always where we left him. This story is not about losing Jesus. It's about forgetting Jesus. Jesus wasn't lost. He knew exactly where he was. They knew where he was. They forgot him. Here's what I'd tell you, Christian, if you find yourself in this place. Tell me the last place you remember really having Jesus. And I'll tell you to go back there. Have you grown cold in daily devotion and prayer? Take take a look at your life. Have you just grown, have you got dry on that front? Have you maybe like found other things in life that have kept you busy and not been doing that? I tell you to go back. Go back. Have you grown weak in your commitment to the local church body gathering together and fellowshipping? Has it grown less? I would tell you to go back. Has your life changed? What things have been different? Were you with Jesus before a relationship started? And then you started a relationship that was in your life. Maybe it wasn't best for you, but you started journeying in this relationship and you realized, wait, I didn't bring Jesus with me in this relationship. Did you start a new job and make some commitments in that employment and you realize, wait, I I didn't bring Jesus with me in this job and the way that I'm working. Did you or your family make a commitment to something? Maybe to other people, to your community, to a youth sports activity. Did you make a commitment that's gathering and collecting all of your time and you wake up and go, I don't have Jesus in this place with me anymore. I forgot him. I would tell you to go back to the place you left him. You see, you don't always have to quit the things that you're doing. And maybe you've made some commitments in relationships or in work or in your family life. You don't always have to quit those things, but what you do have to do is tell those things, that relationship, that boss, that work, that commitment in your family, hey, listen, before I started this, I was with Jesus, and Jesus is going with me now. He gets first right of refusal. I ask him what's best for me. I walk with him. And here's what's going to happen. You'll tell your newfound relationship, your newfound boss, your newfound life commitment, I'll be a better person in this relationship when I bring him with me. I promise. Remember where you lost Jesus and you know exactly 
where to find him. Let's get the last lesson. What do you actually find when you find Jesus? When you get there. Here's why this story mattered to Mary. I'm convinced of it. Here's why this story is so important to Mary. It's not just egg on her face like, oh, I I lost Jesus that one time. Wasn't that funny? It's more than that. When she got back to Jerusalem, something happened to her that she had never had happened in her life. Now remember, she birthed this kid as a virgin. Big deal, right? Like, whoa. And from that moment forward, there's been angels in her life talking to her. There's been shepherds showing up saying random weird things that just confirm who Jesus is. Prophets in the temple when Jesus is brought to be circumcised are picking him up and celebrating the Savior of the world and kissing him. And they're like, wait, wait a minute, man. It's the wrong season to kiss babies. And I'm, I don't think they said that then. But her whole life has been around this. But now, probably for the first time in her life, Jesus himself is telling her who, she, who he is. Imagine that. For the first time, it's not an angel, it's not a shepherd, it's not a prophet. It's Jesus himself saying, Mary, here's who I am. And something happens to Mary. Look what she finds. In Jesus, we find somebody who listens. This is amazing about this story. You show up, he's at the temple sitting at the teacher's feet. He's listening. Get this picture. The guy who wrote the law they're talking about is listening to them teach him the law that he wrote. That tells you about Jesus, doesn't it? And then after you know, Mary pulls Jesus aside and gives him the business, like, why are you doing this to me and your father? What's your problem? Jesus listens to her. I think sometimes people are so convinced all Jesus wants to do is point a finger and preach at you. The first thing he does is listen. He's an unbelievable, amazing, wonderful listener. You heard that old phrase, like, like people say this all the time, it's a, kind of an empty platitude sometimes. Jesus has all the answers, or Jesus is the answer you need, right? You've heard that before? You know why Jesus has the answer? Because he's listened to your question. What questions have you actually brought to him lately? I'm talking about big ones in your life, things you're really worried about, things you're afraid of, things you're concerned about, things you don't quite get yet. What questions have you brought to him? In Jesus, you'll find somebody who listens. You're also going to find somebody who understands. Everyone who was listening around there that was when Jesus was sitting at the feet of the teachers were amazed at his understanding and his answers. That means the understanding means the ability to take different pieces and put it all together as a puzzle and make sense of it. Jesus takes questions and he puts those questions with the right answers. He hears real needs and he gives real answers. He can do this because he knows the word of God like nobody else. Jesus doesn't teach the word of God as just some teacher who has learned it. He teaches and shows the word of God as the one who wrote it. He is the word. He knows the heart of God. He knows exactly what you need. So when you bring these things, these questions to him, he doesn't just have answers. He has understanding. He knows how this piece goes with this piece, and he puts it together. You're going to find somebody who listens, who understands. You're going to find somebody who challenges you too. A very important part of this story, Mary grabs Jesus and she says, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantically looking for you. And Jesus says to her politely, why are you looking for me? Meaning, you didn't really need to look for me. Why did you need to look? You should have known where I was. And he makes a shift. If you pay very close attention, Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you. And Jesus says, I must be about my 
Father's business. See, Jesus makes a subtle shift there. And Luke wants you and I to do what Mary does in this story. Mary doesn't understand that right away. There's something about that that's heavy. And you'll find this with Jesus as he listens to your questions, as he understands and gives answers. It doesn't always just happen immediately. It's not easy. Jesus gives us challenging answers, but Luke wants us to do what Mary did. She treasured these things in her heart, meaning she pondered about them. She continued to think about them. She wrestled with what does it mean that he said, I must be about my father's business. She contemplated and prayed about and thought about and pondered until the lights came on. And then it clicked. When you see Jesus, you're going to have somebody who listens to you, understands, who challenges you. But you're going to see somebody who obeys. You notice Jesus walks away with Mary, right? He says, I got to do this. I got to be about my father's business. But then he walks down with her and Joseph and obeys. The fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. One of the things that's hallmark about Jesus' life is that he keeps every single commandment perfectly. He obeys them all. There's nothing he does that is disobedience. He never once breaks the law. And this is vital for you to understand because he would die a death of a lawbreaker even though he didn't deserve it. Now why? Because it's the perfect plan of God. His obedience, Jesus demonstrating here obedience to Mary and Joseph, his obedience becomes the basis for our ability to relate to the Father again. At the cross, Jesus took upon himself the punishment that disobedience deserves, that you and I have committed, and at the very same time as he took from us the punishment of disobedience, he gave back to us the blessing of obedience. Meaning when God looks at you now, he says, I want to bless you like somebody who's never broken the law of the day in your life. I want to treat you and relate to you and talk with you and care for you like somebody who is perfectly righteous. Why? Because of Jesus. That's grace. And just before leaving the temple, Jesus said something, I believe the one word that defines his life to Mary. He said, why are you looking for me, Mary? I must be about my father's business. Must. That word must has obligation in it. It has necessity in it. Jesus said, I must. In Luke 4, he said, I must preach the gospel. Luke 9, he said, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, killed, rise the third day. Matthew 26, it says that he could have called 12 legions of angels, but the scripture must be fulfilled. It has to go this way. In Luke chapter 19, after in this story we see him talk to Zacchaeus, he says, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house. In John chapter 6, a group of people came to Jesus and said, what must we do to work the work of God? Jesus said, you've got to believe who I am. In John chapter 3, when Nicodemus wanted his place in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, you must be born again. His life was defined by must. And when you understand what's behind it, what's in it, and what happened because of his must, the death, the burial, and resurrection, it leaves you with this choice. You either are in with him and you must, or you walk away and you're out. What's it going to be today? Let's stand and sing this song together. If you have a need, won't you come?